Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Who hasn't heard the saying, you can sleep when you're dead? Unfortunately, this cavalier approach to sleep has significant consequences for both patients and physicians. Today, we will speak with Marty Martin about those consequences. We will also examine the disconnect between medical knowledge and healthcare staffing. This is an important topic, so let's begin. Dr. Marty Martin is a licensed clinical psychologist with a master's in behavioral sleep medicine. He is a former fellow at the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Dr. Martin is a professor at DePaul University, where he directs two combined degree programs. He's written dozens of peer-reviewed articles and several books. You may have also seen his writing in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, or USA Today. Professor Martin, Welcome to Sound Practice. Yep, glad to be here. Thanks for taking time. So our audience today is comprised of physicians and healthcare executives. They should all have a basic understanding of the importance of sleep. Yet from an HR perspective, the healthcare industry does not incorporate this knowledge into practice very well. Why is that? Um, that's a great question and you're absolutely right. Is uh, many what I would call safety sensitive industries Healthcare is one of them, uh, police and fire is another, nuclear industry is another. Uh, they tend to ignore the science. Um, so I think part of it is this whole notion of, well, we're healthcare professionals, and as professionals, we're kind of above and beyond what the science says. I think that's one piece. And the other piece is well, we're so dedicated, we're so educated, we're so committed that the things that make us human really don't apply to us. And there is also this other aspect of a little bit of um, what I'd call machismo, if you will, but not just restricted to men, is put on your big boy and big girl's pants and just tough it out. So I think that those are some of the things that cause us to ignore what's in the literature, unlike if you look at the airline industry. So the airline industry, they're very strict in terms of scheduling and sleep um, and that's a safety sensitive industry. Now, the thing about the airline industry is if there's a plane crash tomorrow and 300 people die, then it's, it's newsworthy because 300 people died at exactly the same time. But maybe I'm a surgeon. I could conceivably kill 300 people over the course of my career, but it's not all at one time. So in healthcare, it sounds kind of bold, but I'm going to say it. In healthcare, we tend to kill people one at a time. And if you go back to air as human, 98,000 unnecessary deaths in every single year. So if you look at how many airplanes are crashing. So I think the other thing too, is we don't necessarily feel the impact of sleep deprivation in the same way as maybe a, a train derailment or a nuclear disaster or an airline. So some of this may sound as if I'm rationalizing for the healthcare industry. I'm not rationalizing, but those are the rationalizations I have heard throughout my career. And I think we need to change that. That makes makes sense to me. Maybe you could remind us all of the, the long-term and, and near-term consequences of sleep deficiency. Yep, let me go to let me go to near-term first. So first, a couple parameters. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends for adults 18 to 65 
that you get seven to nine hours of sleep. Now, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine does not say, well, everybody gets seven to nine hours of sleep except for physicians and nurses and pharmacists and techs. So you, you can get by on six. It doesn't say that. It's seven to nine hours because we're all human. The other piece too is if you get less than six hours of sleep kind of in a chronic way, then that has detriments to not only your performance the next day, but also to your lifespan as well. So short sleep duration as defined by less than six is becoming an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Independent risk factor, just like cholesterol is a risk factor, diabetes is a risk factor, obesity is a risk factor, smoking is a risk factor, independent risk factor. So let's take you for example. Let's imagine that last night you got six hours of sleep and you had to work today. So you're gonna feel the impact of that lack of sleep today. Your decision-making, your problem-solving, your concentration, your focus, your ability to engage with others in an interpersonally savvy way, your ethical decision-making, all of that is gonna be impaired, not two years from now, the very next day. So I think what a lot of healthcare professionals feel to recognize is you pay the cost of not sleeping well the next day. That makes sense. Now you and the audience can determine just how many hours of sleep I had last night, uh, mm. <laughs> Dr. Martin. So your, uh, your, your website, ZestySleep.com, you have a blog post that addresses micro breaks. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what a micro break is, what the benefits from micro breaks may be, and any tips for healthcare providers regarding micro breaks? Yep, fantastic. Let me begin with a micro break is this. So they, well, let me ask you this question. How many minutes are there in a day? So 60 times 24, right? Yep, so if you do the math, you'll get 1,440 minutes. So there's right. 1,440 minutes, a lot of minutes during the day. So a micro break is this, maybe every hour you take one to two minutes and you do something that's not focused on work. So what you don't want to do is um, move from one work task to another work task. That's not a micro break. Nor do you want to move from a work task to maybe a conflictual conversation, because although it's not work stress, it's interpersonal stress. So maybe you stretch, maybe you relax, maybe you close your eyes. Maybe you look out the window, maybe you, you know, walk around your desk. Um, so you do something that's cognitive, you do something that's physical, that is distinct and different from a work task, and you do something that's not inherently stressful. So ideally, you should do that one to two minutes on the hour. So if someone were to say you work eight hours, so I'm talking a total of 16 minutes, if you do it for two minutes. So if you tell me, Marty, you don't know how busy my life is, there's no way in the world that I can do this for 16 minutes, let alone two minutes. I can't even do two minutes. Then I'm going to say to you is, hmm, I get it. You can't spend two minutes out of 1,440 minutes in a day. So when you think about that, and if you say that to yourself, it sounds ridiculous. And it sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So... Chronotypes, can you tell me, do they, is this something different or a, a variant from circadian rhythms? Ah, yep. So uh, they're, they're pretty close. So let me distinguish between the two. So we have four seasons. Yep. And then in a given day, you have the rising and the setting of the sun. 
that changes through different types. And then if you think about birds, so birds will begin to chirp really a little bit before dawn. And then they'll also get very active a little bit through dusk and through nightfall. So they don't have clocks like we do. There's no timekeeping device, but all animals and even plants have circadian clocks. And in fact, three scientists won the Nobel Prize, I think it was well, maybe four or five years ago, because they discovered the clock gene. So there is a clock gene. And what that clock gene does, it's our internal timekeeper. So with our circadian rhythm, so our bodies say now is the time to eat, now is the time to sleep, now is the time to digest. So a lot of things that happen, happen rhythmically. That's why if you go you know, overseas and you go east to west, you're gonna experience jet lag. Because remember, your body has an internal clock, but yet if you go eight hours away, cross eight time zones, your body is still stuck. We're both of us in the Midwest and Central time. Your body's still on Central time internally, but externally, you're eight hours away. So when you are saying it's time to sleep on Chicago time, people in your destination, they may be awake. So in general, it takes you a day for your body to adjust to each time zone. So now let's go to chronotypes. So the chronotypes are based upon our clock gene. And there's an assessment called the morningness, eveningness questionnaire that you can take. And it basically divides us into three basic types. You can be an early morning type, you can be an intermediate, or you can be a night owl. And here's the thing is that's genetically determined. So my eyes are hazel. My eyes have always been hazel. They will always be hazel. They will never change because they're genetically determined. So I may want them to be black, but I can want and wish for them to be black all day long. They will never be black unless I get black contacts. Likewise, I'm an early morning person by chronotype. I've been an early morning uh, uh, chronotype all my life. Even in adolescence, I slept later like most adolescents do and I went to bed later, but it was still earlier than other adolescents. So there's nothing I can do to change my chronotype. <laughs> so it's ideal if people know what their chronotype is and you somewhat have to accept it because you can't change it. And then if you can match the external activities in your life to your natural internal clock, you will perform higher, you have less stress, and life will just flow easier because you're working with your clock. You're not working against your clock. Okay, so I'm interested in how much performance may vary during the time of the day for an individual. So let's assume I'm, I'm a night owl. Yep. If I have to take a test at, at seven in the morning, will the score vary tremendously if I took that same test at say nine o'clock in the evening? Uh, will not vary, and also how you define tremendously. You could say, for example, it's a score from zero to 100. There okay. could be a 10 point differential. So as much as, much as 10%. Could be, a, yep, could be a 10% differential. Not, now, not insignificant. Olympics, not insignificant at yep. all. Yep. The Olympics are coming up. And then a lot of um, athletes, they're beginning to work with sleep psychologists and circadian biologists because for them, performance could be 0 0.02 seconds. So right. that's the reason why they're working with sleep psychologists and circadian biologists 
because for them, the performance makes a tremendous difference. And then if you look at professional coaches, whether it's basketball or whether it's, you know, traveling teams, baseball, many of them, the most important decisions that they make is schedule, particularly if I'm an East Coast team or a West Coast team. And at what time do we play the team on the other coast? So, cause they know that that can have an impact on um, scheduling. And then for some of you, you may wanna to go to the literature, you can go to Google or you can go to PubMed and I'm not gonna give any investment advice, but there's some studies that are there in peer reviewed journals that indicate is if you bet in a certain way on a certain team that you can have a higher chance of winning based upon scheduling and whether it's an East Coast team or a West Coast team and at what time of the day or night that they play. Fascinating. What does this say about scheduling of surgical procedures, swing shifts for nursing staff and other things along those lines for the healthcare profession? Okay, let me, let me go to um, scheduling of procedures. So I'm gonna address it from the perspective of the individual that is doing the procedure and all the team members. And I'll also do it from the perspective of the patient as well. So as I suggested is I'm an early morning chronotype. So the good news is this, most surgical procedures may start around 7 a.m. and finish up like two to three. So if I'm a surgeon or a proceduralist or interventionalist, it just so happens is the way those schedules are designed, they favor people that are early morning people. But let's imagine I'm a late night person. So my genetically determined clock gene says is, well, Marty, you really only get sleepy about 12 midnight to 1 a.m. Now I may have to do some things to sleep early, but naturally midnight to 1 a.m. is when I get sleepy. So let's say I'm a surgeon. So I fall asleep routinely at one o'clock in the morning, but I've got a seven, seven a.m. start case. So I sleep from maybe one to 5.30, five and a half hours, I'm below six, and to get myself together and I'm in the OR at seven. So that's gonna impact my performance. So it begs the question is, is the medical director, the VP or the you know, director of nursing, they should ideally have me do later case starts because since I'm going to sleep at one, let's say I get eight hours, that's nine. So maybe have me start at 10, but it all depends on what's the last case. So I think that's what's important. The other piece that's important is as a patient, you don't know what the person's chronotype is. But I would suggest this, God forbid you have a dental procedure, a surgical procedure. You wanna to try to get in there before 12 noon because of two things. Is assuming, because most, only 15% of the population is late night, so you're not risking too much. But there's also something called time of day. So if you got up at six o'clock and you got to work at say, you know, 7.38, and you've been up for six hours at noon, so, if you are scheduled for an intervention at two, then the person's been up eight hours. So what happens is you get the afternoon slump from 12 to three, that's biologically driven. And on top of that, you get fatigue. So they've done some studies looking at gastroenterologists and polyp detection. After six hours, their polyp detection accuracy rate drops. And you want your polyp detection accuracy rate to at least be constant or increase. So that's a factor of time of day and fatigue. So you also have to consider that as well. 
So I think with regard to scheduling is that first, I think healthcare professionals need to embrace the science and as they embrace the science, need to factor into the equation fatigue, factor in the equation time of day. And if they really wanna go all out and really drive efficiency and performance and productivity and safety and quality, they also need to do the chronotypes in each and every individual of their staff members. So that way, each staff member is working at the right time for their biological clock. And also too, going back to those rest breaks is, is that the fatigue does not result in an increase in mistakes or errors because we're not machines. So there may be, so I think that would be the ideal situation. There's no mandate to do it in healthcare, we don't do it. There are mandates to do it in the aviation industry and they do it. And for Olympic and cutting edge professionals, there's no mandate, but they wanna perform at a high level, they wanna win. Let's talk about another wild card, being on call. Being mm -hmm. on call is a part of many physicians' daily life. As a sleep expert, how should physicians and hospitals balance the need for coverage with the need for sleep and optimal performance? Yep, that's a great point. So you do need, it all depends on what your specialty is, what the organization is. You need 365, 24-7 coverage if you're in a hospital environment. So for there is kind of same considerations, but I think when you're doing the scheduling, don't put somebody on a swing shift. So for example, I go from 7A to 7P for one day, and then they say, okay, Marty, now we want you to do 11P to 7A. So just from that particular structure is I've been, I've swung my shift. Because remember what you're doing is you're almost inducing jet lag. Mm. And it takes one day in order for one time zone. And when you go from one time zone to another, that's an hour difference. So you have to factor that in mind is for each hour, you're almost inducing um, jet lag. Then it takes a day for the individual to actually adjust to that. So people need to be mindful of that. The other piece is, given my chronotype, I'm naturally up at 4.35 o'clock. And I am naturally sleepy at um, eh, about 9, 9.30. I'm like sleepy. And I know my performance is not high. I, I knowing what I know, I never entered a specialty where I had to work at night because I knew if I had to work at night, it would be a struggle. Now, might I be able to get by? Sure, I could get by, I could self-medicate, but I would not be optimal performance. I did inpatient work, yep, for a small period of time, but I struggled with it at night and also did sleep lab work, yep, but I struggled with it. So in terms of my old clinical specialty, it, it kind of migrated to those things that were not strictly bound by a schedule is not aligned with my biological clock. So I do see the need for coverage, but I also see the need to be um, selective about who takes what shift. And you also wanna make sure you have some consistency in the schedule as well, because doing those swings, it's the, the, another um, publication does not need to be entered into the literature to keep proving the same thing. The challenge is, is that many healthcare professionals in decision-making roles are ignoring the literature. Now they might say, well, I've got a business to run. Um, but I, granted, you got a business to run, so run the business, 
but you need to account for the, the fact you're going to have more mistakes, you're going to have more errors. And then what about workers' comp claims? Not to mention, people, everybody's focused on burnout, 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 and they should be focused on burnout. Um, but but not getting healthy sleep certainly ain't helping burnout. That's a that's a fact. Well, let's shift gears, Dr. Bart. We're recording this podcast at the end of end of March. Although numbers are improving, our nation continues to wrestle with with COVID nineteen. Studies show that the efficiency of many vaccines is significantly improved by proper sleep. Is this true of vaccines for COVID-19? Um, also, can you just generally speak of the link between sleep and the immune system? Okay, yeah. So let me talk about sleep and the immune system first, then I'll get to coronavirus because it's a novel virus. So the benefits that accrue to you when you're sleeping are many. So one of them is, is you get a boost in your immune system. The other is there's some early research that's suggesting too is that um, like little vacuum cleaners are operating in your brain, kind of uh, cleaning out the plaque. So as you know, plaque is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. So a lot of people think sleep is a complete waste of time. I'm doing nothing. Um, it may seem as if you're doing nothing because you're not aware of your different state of consciousness, but your immune system is being boosted. Um, kind of this clack buildup is being erased. Also, you're having memory consolidation. You're also involved in dreaming. So a lot of um, recovery mechanisms are happening while you're asleep, which do not happen when you're in a state of rest. So a lot of people think is, I know I don't sleep so well, but I rest. Okay, but when you're resting, those things I mentioned, they're not occurring. So you're not awake and aroused, but those mechanisms aren't occurring. So with regard to the coronavirus and the vaccine, so the, the understanding is this, and again, it's, it's a novel coronavirus, we don't know for sure, is that given the fact that your immune system is strengthened while you're sleeping, that gives the vaccine a little bit more of a boost. Yep, so a little kind of booster effect because you are amplifying with the vaccine that which occurs naturally. Thank you. So every person listening to this podcast has a mobile device that, that he or she uses. And many have these devices bedside. Does that interfere with sleep? And if so, how? Uh, Y-E-S, it does for sure, yes. So how, a couple of ways. So one way is this is the, the smart devices emit blue light. <clears throat> So if it's dark in the room and you have this blue light that's being emitted, then that blue, blue light hits your eyes, hits the retina, goes to the optic nerve. Also, then the pineal gland is triggered. And then what happens is you don't get melatonin production. You get the suppression of melatonin. So melatonin is a natural hormone that doesn't make you fall asleep, but it kind of initiates sleep. So blue light suppresses melatonin. So it makes it harder for you to fall asleep. So that's one reason why you should not be looking at that in the bedroom. The other is, let's look at the content. So maybe you're watching something or viewing something that is hyper arousing. So it could be hyper arousing in a negative way or it could be hyper arousing in a positive way. That's gonna help be a challenging for you to fall asleep because you're in a state of hyper arousal. The other is, is maybe you're physically involved with it. If you're physically involved with some motor activity, 
that's going to contribute to some hyperarousal. So those are at least three reasons why your device does not need to be in your bed because it's been reported that up to 52% of Americans, the device is in the bed. Not on the bedside, but in the bed with them. So it doesn't need to be in the bed. And actually, it should be out of reach from where you are. That sounds like, like good advice. As we wrap up our, our time together, what sleep recommendations can you offer the physician leaders listening to the podcast today? Let me talk about personally first, and then I'm going to go to organizationally. Yep. So on a personal, if you were to do one thing and one thing only, it would be have a consistent sleep schedule according to your chronotype. And the consistent sleep schedule means this. So for me, ideally, I should be in the bed and sleep between 9.30 and about 10. And ideally, I you know wake up between 5 and 6. So I should keep that consistent sleep schedule until the day I die. However, when I get older, like 70s and 80s, I'm going to have fragmented sleep, but I'm going to set that aside for a moment. So then you may ask the question, well, Marty, well, what about Saturday and Sunday? My body does not know it's Saturday and Sunday. All my body knows is day one, day two, day three. It doesn't know about Saturday and Sunday. You say, well, Marty, what about vacation? My body does not know I'm on vacation. My body doesn't care. So a consistent sleep schedule is key. Now, again, personally, I think for a lot of busy physicians and healthcare executives is you may go to sleep with a lot of stuff on your mind, or you may be worried about the next day, or you might be ruminating about stuff and rehearsing stuff. I would, a piece of advice I give to my patients is this, put yourself to sleep as if you were a toddler. And then I say, what do you mean? Put myself to sleep as if I was a toddler. So I said, imagine you have a three or four year old. And three or four year olds running 100 miles an hour, they're moving, 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 going fast, going fast. You don't take that three year old and then just plop that three year old in the bed after running around 100 miles an hour, turn off the lights and walk out the room and expect them to go to sleep. It's not going to happen. But what do you do? Is maybe an hour before, maybe lights are down, maybe story time, maybe take a bath. Uh, things get quieter. So you kind of lull that little toddler to sleep and then he or she falls to sleep. So as adults, we're not toddlers, but we have to put ourselves to sleep as if we're a toddler. So for everybody personally, consistent schedule, put yourself to sleep as a toddler. Now, for, the, for those of you in decision-making roles where you're controlling schedules, then this is what I would encourage you to do. Because since largely, people in the healthcare professional are ignoring the literature, do a pilot experiment in your organization. So maybe you take a site, maybe you take a shift, maybe you take a division, maybe you take a unit, and then you look at their chronotypes. You do a set schedule based upon chronotypes. You factor in time of day, and then maybe some outcome measures. Maybe it's safety, maybe it's harm index, maybe it's engagement, maybe it's throughput. So you have those dependent variables, and then you know, and then compare that to a similar unit or site, and let me know what the evidence suggests. So don't approach it from your belief system. Don't approach it with what I call status quo bias. And status quo bias would be is, well, I can get by, so therefore everybody else ought to be able to get by. Don't approach it from status quo bias, but approach it from a, a scientific point of view is what I would strongly encourage you to do. What I'd also encourage you to focus upon 
is if you've got a safety initiative, a quality initiative, a burnout initiative, an engagement initiative, a satisfaction initiative, and even if there's been some ethical breaches um, in your organization and you're not addressing sleep, you're not going to get 100% to where you need to get unless you address sleep. That is the, the if you will, the pun, the sleeping giant in the room. Excellent. We will leave it on that note. My guest has been Dr. Marty Martin, a national recognized expert in uh, behavioral sleep medicine. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for being a guest on Sound Practice. All right, you're more than welcome. My thanks to Professor Marty Martin for joining us. The challenge seems to be translating medical knowledge as to the importance of sleep into operational practices in healthcare. Physician leaders need to address this disconnect for the sake of their own colleagues and patients. Hopefully, sleep will ultimately be treated in a manner consistent with that of the aviation industry. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin, written book about.